Thank you to everybody for, for coming out. Um, I want to introduce myself. My name is Brandon Arnold. I'm the Director for Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Uh, I want to just take a care of a couple housekeeping notes before we actually get started with the program. Um, the first of which is the, the Cato Handbook for Policy, this big yellow tomb which I have here. Uh, this provides a pretty good overview of pretty much all the issues going on uh, here in Capitol Hill, uh, from taxes, immigration, trade, foreign policy. Uh, it's a great way uh, to kind to of get acclimated with issues you may not be familiar with. Uh, it's a great primer on, on a, how to look at issues from a uh, free market, libertarian type perspective. Uh, we do provide this free to all offices. Hopefully you already have one. If not, please let me know, and we'll be sure to get you one. Um, secondly, I'd like to, to briefly plug uh, Cato Audio. Uh, this is a uh, publication that we put out. Uh, it's obviously audio cassette, also in CD format, also on uh, iTunes, I believe. Uh, but it's a way you can get... Um, you know, the, the audio from events like this, uh, events that we do at our offices in, in uh, downtown, and events that we do across the country. You can, you can uh, listen to what our scholars and experts have to say on a uh, wide variety of issues. Uh, that is, this uh, product is, is free to, uh, to Hill staff as well, so let me know if we've run out of copies on the table outside. We'll be uh, happy to get a copy to you. Um, also, uh, new at Cato.org is... Uh, um, pretty much all of the audio that you'll find in, in uh, our Cato Audio publication is now up um, in podcast format. So you can download MP3s and on your Metro ride or what have you, listen to, uh, to our, our speeches and events that way. Um, finally, I'd like to plug uh, Cato Today, which is a daily email that we produce which has information about events, uh, upcoming events, uh, upcoming studies, op-eds, uh, various uh, publications of interest. It's a good way to, to start off your day to see what Cato's up to and see what's going on uh, in the libertarian free market type uh, on those type issues. Um, okay, with that, I'm going to introduce our first speaker. Um, both of our speakers today have, have authored uh, this policy paper, um, which is available on the table outside. Hopefully everyone has picked it up today. Um, if you haven't, though, there should be a, a few more out there. Um, and, of course, it's about uh, a standing nation-building office. And our first speaker today is going to be Justin Logan, our foreign policy analyst. Thanks a lot, Brandon, and thanks to all of you for being here. Uh, I've got a pretty simple task here today. All I need to do is convince everybody in the room that Francis Fukuyama, Joe Biden, Max Boot, President Bush, Senator Luger, and Secretary Rice are all wrong, and Chris and I are right. So I think 20 minutes probably should be plenty of time uh, to do that. Uh, in all seriousness, though, the paper covers a lot of ground, and I encourage you, obviously, to read it. Um, but I'm going to try to touch as briefly as I can on some of the general themes here today and leave as much time for question and answers. Hopefully we'll have a, a, a spirited discussion. We're told increasingly that failed states are threatening to the United States. Francis Fukuyama, for example, has said, quote, it should be abundantly clear that state weakness and failure is the most critical single threat to U.S. national security. Carlos Pascual, the first coordinator for reconstruction and stabilization, and Stephen Krasner, the director of policy planning at state, made the point in a similar way in foreign affairs, quote, weak and failed states pose an acute risk to U.S. and global security. Well, these kinds of claims led Chris and I to wonder, do failed states pose such a threat? If they are threatening, uh, what would a strategy of, quote, fixing failed states look like? 
and how likely would it be to succeed? And the first thing we tried to do is define the terms of debate, and we had a little bit more trouble with that than I think we would have liked. What do we mean when we say failed state? Uh, And surprisingly, there seemed to be no consensus in the policy community and the academic community. It was just sort of this nebulous term that we recognized when we saw. Um, We did find a few attempts to define state failure and list the states that met those criteria, but we were remarkably disappointed both with the methodology that these studies used to assess state failure and the results that the methodologies produced. The most systematic report on state failure was headed by the University of Maryland's Ted Robert Gurr, a very prestigious political scientist, and had been commissioned by the CIA's Directorate of Operations in 2000. Uh, I don't want to bore you too long, uh, too much length with the methodology. We bore you with the methodology in the paper. Um, But their study concluded that a number of countries, including Burma, Egypt, Israel, Pakistan, and Turkey, were all failed states throughout the 1990s. And I would submit that a category that includes countries that diverse can't tell us very much about what types of problems those countries may pose, let alone suggest any possible solutions. Other studies bump a slew of sort of strategic backwaters up to the front of the line. The Fund for Peace and Foreign Policy magazine recently drew up their list of failed states, with the top five failed states being Cote d'Ivoire, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Sudan, Iraq, and Somalia. Again, although these states shared enough in common to end up on their list of failed states, it's hard to tell how the most failed state on their list, the Ivory Coast, poses essentially any concern for U.S. security. Our paper goes on at some length documenting the few existing lists of failed states, and what you end up with is essentially all of sub-Saharan Africa, a series of island nations in the South Pacific, and several other countries becoming sort of usual suspects. But the question that is never answered is how do these countries threaten us? Why is there this widely held belief that, say, civil unrest in Burma is inherently threatening to our country? And the question never gets answered. Uh, presumably, this, this idea of failed states being threatening caught on in the wake of 9-11. Uh, Afghanistan was clearly a failed state and clearly had posed a threat, and so those things sort of go together in some abstract way. Uh, but I challenge any of you to peruse the lists of failed states that we reproduce in the paper and then tell me that the majority of them genuinely cause you concern for the lives and well-being of Americans. And, and, and they would have to cause you enough concern that you would be ready to deploy U.S. personnel in dangerous environments overseas for a long period of time. So even though the the premise that failed states are threatening is far from established, the discussion is sort of bounded off toward tackling this supposed problem. Thus, in 2004, the State Department opened an office uh, devoted especially to handling U.S. policy in failed states, and that is the Office of the Coordinator for Reconstruction and Stabilization. Uh, SCRS is a tiny office with fewer employees than the Cato Institute, mind you, uh, that is in charge of, quote, determining the appropriate non-military responses of the United States, including but not limited to demobilization, policing, human rights monitoring, and public information efforts in failed states. According to Secretary of State Rice, the office has started out by focusing on Sudan, Liberia, and Haiti. As some of you may know, the office has struggled to get funding and was zeroed out in the 06 Foreign Appropriations Bill. Congress told the office that it needs to provide, quote, a comprehensive, disciplined, and coherent strategy detailing how the office will coordinate the U.S. approach to post-conflict operations. Uh, I think that whoever wrote that line, I'd like to take the lunch. Uh, But the office has subsequently gotten some cash in the Iraq supplemental, and it's gotten authority for DOD to transfer $200 million in the event that DOD is deployed uh, in one state to pitch in. I think, frankly, it's all but inevitable that the office will get funding eventually, uh, but I want to go on to explain why the existence of the office is a bad idea in the first place. 
but to back up a little bit, let's say I didn't convince you uh, that we can get along without concerning ourselves about the internal developments in Liberia. Say you're worried that we'll have to fix Freetown or fight them in Florida. Uh, what does it take to fix failed states? And what is the historical track record of success? How much does it cost, and how would we do it? The track record of nation building is not a heartening one. We remember the operations in Somalia, but what we see in the Balkans today isn't much, uh, much more heartening. We, we poured more than $20 billion into that part of the world without any political resolution at this point, uh, and Western troops still sit on a powder keg that is not resolved at all. Um, in the most thorough study of American nation-building missions, the Rand Corporation concluded that post-World -war, post War II Germany and Japan represented successes with every other U.S. nation-building mission uh, some degree of failure. Now, why was it uh, in this case that post-World War II Germany and Japan succeeded, whereas Somalia, Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo, and the list of others had failed? Well, first of all, the populations of Germany and Japan had been devastated by sustained campaigns of firebombing, and in the case of Japan, the detonation of two nuclear devices on its territory. In situations like Haiti or like Sudan, uh, where there has not been a conclusive military defeat and a conclusive military victory, history indicates that there will be insurgent violence ongoing uh, alongside any efforts to, to reconstruct and stabilize those countries. And this points to the inevitable conclusion that security is an essential component of successful nation-building. And in most cases, U.S. troops would have to bear the brunt of providing that security. In an environment where civil conflict is simmering at a low level, how many troops does it take to ensure stability in order to construct, conduct stabilization and reconstruction missions? And here, once again, the historical record is not particularly heartening. The Defense Science Board authored a study in 2004 uh, in which they surveyed stabilization and reconstruction missions from Roman times to the present. It's a fascinating read, uh, but their conclusion is incredibly alarming once again, and I want to quote from it extensively. They say that stabilization operations can be very labor-intensive. The United States will sometimes have ambitious goals for transforming a society in a conflicted environment. These goals may well demand 20 troops per thousand inhabitants, working for five to eight years. Given that we may have three to five stabilization and reconstruction activities underway concurrently, it is clear that very substantial resources are needed to accomplish national objectives. Now, I submit to you in this case that very substantial resources remains a bit of an understatement. Chris is going to talk a little bit more about the troops to indigenous ratio with respect to Iraq, but suffice it to say that the principle of 20 per thousand is quite well established. Uh, it doesn't just appear in the DSB report, it appears in the Rand Corporation's report, it appears in all of the academic literature on uh, stabilization and reconstruction. So if you wanted to fix, say, Somalia, the DSB says you'd need between 42,000 and 171,000 foreign troops. Sudan clocks in just a bit higher between 200,000 and 800,000 foreign troops. And you may be sitting there thinking, this guy is crazy. Uh, we don't have those kinds of troops. We're not going to deploy those kinds of troops to Somalia or Sudan. Uh, and you'd be exactly right to think that. We're not going to deploy 200,000 troops to Sudan. But therein lies the problem. Uh, those are the kinds of numbers, again, based on the historical record and according to the government's own figures that you would need in order to be successful, to have a good chance of succeeding in, in, in implanting stable governance in these parts of the world. And the trouble that I see is that SCRS could lead us to taking sort of half-measure interventions that spend American lives in treasure and don't even achieve their objectives. And all of this in pursuit of goals, fixing failed states, that are not essential to our security in the first place. In this sense, and I, and I, and I hope uh, not to alienate the entire audience uh, with the next statement, but this sort of marries the, the sort of 
mushy save the world approach of the Clinton administration with uh, some of the clumsier unilateralism of the Bush administration. At the same time, I, I tried to cover all the bases. It is Cato. Um, at the same time, we, we face very substantial and genuine threats to our security. The Bush administration is adding an incredibly difficult mission uh, to the list of foreign policy priorities. And I think the most remarkable inclusion of this idea that failed states are threatening to us appeared in the October 2005 National Intelligence Strategy. Now, call me crazy, but in my view, the intelligence community has its work cut out for it. Uh, it has to keep tracks on al-Qaeda while it's trying desperately to catch up uh, training and recruiting Arabic speakers. It has to apparently entirely reestablish our presence inside of Iran. Uh, the list goes on and on. At the same time, the president has decided to include in the national intelligence strategy the, the request that the intelligence community bolster the growth of democracy and sustain peaceful democratic states. Well, I'd like peace on earth and goodwill toward men, too, but I don't think that the intelligence community is either very well suited or should be charged with, with achieving those goals. I think finding and, and neutralizing our adversaries is quite difficult enough. By adding these very ambitious goals to the list of tasks that the foreign policy community is charged with accomplishing, uh, I worry that they'll lose focus on their most essential goal, which is providing security for the citizens of the United States. Um, I want to wrap things up just by sort of briefly recapitulating my arguments and, again, to leave plenty of time for questions and answers now that I've, like I say, alienated everybody in the audience. Um, again, the first problem with, CR with SCRS is the blanket characterization that failed states are threatening. Uh, if you look at the top 20 failed states, Ivory Coast, Democratic Republic of Congo, Sierra Leone, Chad, Liberia, Haiti, Rwanda, Colombia, Zimbabwe, Guinea, Bangladesh, Burundi, and the Central African Republic. And these states are not in a significant sense, threats to U.S. national security. To the extent that they are, trying to make them unfailed is not going to, to remedy the threat. Paving roads and establishing new judicial standards is not the way to neutralize threats to the United States. The second problem with SCRS is that it hasn't given any indication that it can reverse the abysmal record of nation-building missions in the past. If they held some Rosetta Stone that would allow us to swoop in and implant good governments in Port-au-Prince, we'd be having a very different discussion here today. But they haven't. Instead, we've opened an office at state that, in my view, would better belong in the Peace Corps. State, like the intelligence community, has quite enough on its plate without trying to fix failed states. The final point is that a strategy of fixing failed states, if we were really serious about it, if we came to a national consensus that it was essential to our national security, would place crushing demands on the U.S. military. You just cannot do these sorts of things without security, and I don't see China, Russia, or India lining up behind us to help. That means the burden would fall to the U.S. military, which is already strained to the breaking point. I have to believe that the administration and Congress recognize this fact, which leads me further to believe that we are not going to deploy the kinds of numbers of troops that it would take to get the job done right. And a job not worth doing right, in my view, isn't a job worth doing at all. As it happens, that segues neatly into Iraq, uh, which my colleague and co-author Chris Preble is going to discuss at some length with respect to the stabilization and reconstruction missions there and how the existence of SCRS would not have gotten us out of the mess that we find ourselves in today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Justin. Um, and thanks, all of you, for coming today. Um, I do want to focus my comments uh, with respect to Iraq, because what we see uh, in discussions of SCRS uh, is that the SCRS enthusiasts, those people who are, who are the true believers, they see the creation and sustaining of SCRS as a positive good. But there are some skeptics and cynics who believe the office to be a necessary evil. And by that I mean 
they, they look at Iraq, which is just hanging over so much of what uh, our, our diplomatic community and, and policymakers are trying to do, and, and they recognize that we, we would prefer that the United States not launch wars of choice, but they're confident that policymakers will continue to do so. I call these people the fatalists or the cynics, if you will. And they say, well, <clears throat> if we're going to do these things anyway, we might as well get them right. Uh, meanwhile, some may argue that uh, if you have a permanent office, SCRS, and it's staffed mostly with career foreign service officers and policy professionals, that might help guard against the hubris and naivete that has characterized the Bush administration's approach to Iraq. And I would argue these are entirely reasonable sentiments, absolutely, but they're based on a fundamental misconception with respect to Iraq. The notion that better planning could have saved Iraq, saved our mission in Iraq, stems from the belief that there was a dearth of planning in the first place. But this is simply false. There was considerable study of the problems of Iraq by both governmental and non-governmental organizations, and even some pre-invasion planning for the post-war period. For reasons that will be discussed, the Bush administration ignored and at times suppressed expert opinion and advice on Iraq, and there is little reason to believe that they would have changed course in January or February or March of 2003 if the arguments and evidence pertaining to Iraq had been packaged and presented by a standing nation-building office such as SCRS as opposed to the various ad hoc committees and task forces that prepared such reports in late 2002 and early 2003. According to James Dobbin of the, Dobbins of the RAND Corporation, Justin cited uh, Ambassador Dobbins' very fine study, Dobbins said, quote, it's not true that there wasn't adequate planning. Pardon the double negative. It's not true that there wasn't adequate planning. There was a volume of planning, Dobbins goes on to say, more than the Clinton administration did for any of its interventions. Thousands of pages of documents on countless aspects of post-war SNR, that is stabilization and reconstruction, issues were produced, most famously by the State Department's Future of Iraq project. Thomas Warwick, a career civil servant, convened a large panel of Iraqi exiles, U.S. diplomats, academics, and other specialists to examine the potential problems of and prospects for a post-war Iraq. The project was begun in April 2002 and was undertaken on Warwick's own initiative in his role as advisor on northern Gulf affairs. The FOI foresaw a number of issues that would need to be taken up over the course of the post-war post -war SNR operations. The Defense Department, explains Dobbins, should have anticipated that when the old regime collapsed, there would be a period of disorder, a vacuum of power. They should have anticipated extremist elements would seek to fill this vacuum of power. They should have, but they did not, despite the fact that the FOI project warmed of just those problems. Critics of the FOI point out that the project did not produce a precise reconstruction plan with detailed analyses of all aspects of a post-conflict strategy for Iraq. The Future of Iraq study, nearly a 1,000 pages long, the product of 17 different working groups, was of uneven, perhaps even dubious quality as far as planning goes. This is what David Kay, the security expert who, of course, later led the CIA's search for Iraq's WMDs, he read the report and he said, quote, it was unimplementable. It was a series of essays to describe what the future could be. It was not a plan to hand to a task force and say, go implement. <clears throat> if it had been carried out, it would not have made a difference, unquote. The important point, however, is that FOI's assumptions and concerns about the post-conflict environment proved to be largely accurate. 
Had policymakers been working from a proper set of assumptions, such as the notion that there would indeed be a, an insurgency or that the cashiering of the Iraqi army would be a bad idea, the post-war planning would have been based on a much more sober appreciation of what the United States would be facing in the aftermath of war. It might even have conditioned the decision to go to war in the first place, although I think that's a debatable point. After all, the president estimated on the, evident, on the basis of what evidence I don't know that the costs of inaction were greater than the costs of action. Part of his cost-benefit analysis, such as it was, was based on outsized expectations about the benefits that would flow from removing Saddam Hussein from power. But again, we're not talking about the benefits. We're talking about the costs. And it's also true that the president dramatically misjudged the cost. In short, the singular failure with respect to Iraq was the decision to launch the war. Planning or lack thereof had nothing to do with it. Accurate data was available, and it was either discarded or ignored. Why was this the case? Well, ideology seems to be the answer, combined with a healthy dose of wishful thinking and analytical bias, which we all suffer from. These factors led senior administration officials to exclude genuine experts from the policy planning process, even as they elevated people with far less experience, but who, the administration believed, shared their governing preconceptions. Take, for example, Warwick, the head of FOI. He was eventually asked to bring the knowledge he had gleaned from organizing the FOI he brought it to Jay Garner, who taken over, of course, as the, uh, the head of the Office of Reconstruction, Stable, uh, Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistant, came there in, in February 2003. Garner asked Warwick to come to Iraq and work for Orha after the conflict had started, but the civilian leadership of the Pentagon prevented Warwick from accepting the assignment. <coughs> Newsweek reporters John Barry and Evan Thomas uh, said that Warwick was vetoed by opponents within the Iraqi exile community. Michael Gordon and Bernard Trainer, in their book, Cobra II, which is quite fun. I've just, I just purchased it earlier this week, and I'm reading it. Uh, they explain the problem thusly. The State Department was working with one group of Iraqis. Deputy Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz was recruiting another. Some Iraqis felt that if they worked with Warwick, <coughs> uh, if they worked with the defense group, excuse me, they might find themselves cut off from Warwick's effort. Rumsfeld told Powell that the decision to block Warwick from going to Iraq and working with Garner was made at a higher level, hinting that it came from Vice President Cheney's office. What do you know about these exiles? Well, one of them is profiled in George Packer's uh, fine book, The Assassin's Gate. Kanan Makia, a member of the Iraqi National Congress, was invited to participate in the FOI project, and he distrusted Warwick. He worried that Warwick and other like-minded people at state and CIA would try to guide post-war policy toward a Musharraf-like figure. Makia and his colleagues wanted none of that. They wanted a relatively free and open democratic process, and they thought that free and open process would confer legitimacy and political authority on them. Uh, that assumption, of course, as we now know, was based on uh, a dearth of evidence that these expatriates had much support, if any, within Iraq. And here again, the State Department had presciently warned against the formation of an Iraqi government in exile, the approach favored by uh, Paul Wolfowitz, because this would give too much power to Iraqi opposition leaders such as Ahmed Chalabi. Instead, according to Gordon and Trainer, officials at state believed that so-called Iraqi internals had to play a major role. When the White House and the Pentagon realized that the INC and other exile groups were more popular in Washington and London than in Baghdad and Basra, it was too late. With Warwick locked out, the FOI materials remained largely unused until much later in the occupation, after most of the serious errors had already been committed. <clears throat> And it was not just a case that State Department material not making its way across the river to the Pentagon. 
The U.S. Army War College also commissioned studies on post-war reconstruction, and these studies also suggested that the costs of a lengthy post-war occupation were likely to be very high and that the risks of failure were considerable. A report by Conrad Crane and W. Andrew Terrell published in February 2003 concluded, for example, that the building of Iraq would, quote, require a considerable commitment of American resources, but the longer U.S. presence is maintained, the more likely violent resistance will develop. The War College study predicted that an exit strategy would be contingent upon, quote, political stability, which will be difficult to achieve given Iraq's fragmented population, weak political institutions, and propensity for rule by violence. Moreover, rehabilitating Iraq will be an important challenge that threatens to consume huge amounts of resources without guaranteed result. Or perhaps most, perhaps most damning of all is the fact the President's own National Security Council drafted a memo in February 2003 assessing the historical record and suggesting that if historical precedent were followed, again addressing the things that Justin mentioned a few minutes ago, if historical precedent were followed, 500,000 troops would be necessary to successfully pursue stabilization and reconstruction in Iraq. It's unclear whether the report made to the president, but we know that, sec- that then National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice did read the memo, and here again the assessment was either ignored or dismissed. I'd like to say a few words about troop levels. This is a very persistent view in this town and in this country that the troop levels were so critical, and Justin did reference the 20 to 1,000 figure. I just want to read from a, another paper uh, prepared for the U.S. Army War College. It was actually published after Justin and I published our paper, uh, and uh, or at the, about the same time, I should say. So we didn't have a chance to incorporate it into our paper. But I think this is very good. It's by David Henderson and Robert Tucker. And they said that, uh, again, mentioning the, the if you use the Bosnia model of troops, 364,000 would be required. Uh, General uh, Tony Zinni had come up with a plan when he was CENTCOM commander calling for an invasion force of 400,000. But they point out two large qualifications. First, the United States did not actually have in possession the requisite numbers of troops. Second, a much larger force at the beginning would have substantially decreased the ability of the United States to maintain higher force levels over the course of the occupation. Once the problem is seen as one of maintaining a force over a protracted period, say three to five years, there is simply no way to generate those large numbers within existing force constraints. So there you have it, as far as the troop levels go. Sober information based on history and facts was available from any number of sources. This is before SCRS was created, mind you. Instead, the decision makers in the White House and the Pentagon decided to bank on a number of other dubious assumptions, which we've already talked about, and I'll skip over that again. So there was an abundance of evidence. The environment in post-war Iraq would be incredibly difficult and require, require a great deal of sacrifice. By contrast, the Pentagon, chiefly with crucial concurrence from the White House, believed that resistance would be light and that a new liberal Iraqi leader could be implanted without the need for a long-term military presence. They're very explicit on this point. Secretary Rumsfeld, the president, and others simply did not anticipate the need for a long-term occupation. But importantly, pessimistic but ultimately accurate assessments from the Department of State, the Army War College, NSC, were seen at the time as unduly negative. It is unclear how or why similar assessments prepared and packaged by a standing nation-building office like SCRS would have been embraced by policymakers. 
The planning documents and research reports prepared by government experts determined that Iraqi exile groups were not in a good position to assume control over Iraq's shattered institutions. If the errors in analysis and execution with respect to Iraq were driven by politics, it is obvious that a similar political dynamic could just as easily circumvent expert opinion in the future, even if it were prepared by a standing nation-building office. And yet, SCRS leaders have dropped hints that the real value of their office is that it would have been able to save Iraq. During testimony before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in June 2005, Carlos Pascual, the first coordinator of the state for stabilization and reconstruction, suggested that, quote, in the case of Iraq, by changing the dynamics enough to allow just one division to leave one month early, we would have saved $1.2 billion, unquote. He went on to say the SCRS mission saves live, lives by removing our troops from harm's way. With all due respect, it is very difficult for me to believe that $100 million given to a small office in the State Department could have saved billions in a large and fractious country like Iraq by bringing U.S. troops home sooner. Even the wisest advice and counsel from this tiny office in the future is sure to be overshadowed by a host of other organizations and institutions, both from within the federal government, including DOD and the broader intelligence community, plus the inevitable expatriate and exile organizations clamoring for regime change virtually everywhere you can imagine. After all, Warwick and the rest of the State Department were under the guise of the FOI project, were, appear to have been marginalized by a small group of Iraqi exiles. Why do we believe the dynamic would be substantially different when we're talking about Sierra Leone or, or Haiti or Burundi or I could go on? No reason. Let me close with this, because Justin also alluded to this, and I think this is very important. If we intend to seriously embark on nation-building missions, we must be prepared to bear heavy costs in time, money, and American lives. Or we must be prepared to fail. As Francis Fukuyama concedes, nation building has been most successful where U.S. forces have remained for generations. We should not get involved, involved to begin with if we are not willing to pay those high costs. We agree. But in the quiet and ill-framed debate over creation of SCRS, the real cost of vigorously pursuing the office's mandates have escaped scrutiny. As I've already said, it's highly unlikely that an office like SCRS might have headed off some of the poor decisions made during the occupation of Iraq. But I think the problem goes even deeper than that. Far from helping the government avoid future Iraq-style debacles, the mere existence of SCRS would give a permanent voice within the national security bureaucracy in support of policies that generate nation-building missions. In other words, making the bureaucracy even more biased towards ill-advised wars of choice than it already is. Successful nation-building is predicated on the ability to stay in country for a very long time with many troops. A permanent office like SCRS is likely to pursue missions that will place more U.S. troops in more places abroad for long periods of time. In an age in which international terrorism could just as plausibly arise from Marseille, France, as it could from Tashkent, Uzbekistan, America cannot afford to lose its focus and sap its strength by engaging in often futile attempts to build nations. For these reasons, Americans are correct in their skepticism of nation-building and of a standing nation-building office. Thank you very much. <clears throat> okay, we have uh, time for some questions. Yes. Omar al from American 
few days of, of the occupation, when, when the military operations ended, um, like these crucial days, it seemed as if the U.S. did everything it can to make Iraq a great state by not protecting Iraqi institutions, except for the, like all the ministries, except for the oil ministry, the museum, the, the libraries. Were there any, I, I, I don't know about this, but were there any advice about what to do, you know, in these few days? And was it ignored, or what was the dynamic? Um, let me take that. What, <clears throat> what we do know is that um, the, the key difference of opinion between chiefly Secretary Rumsfeld and uh, senior military leaders in terms of what would be required in terms of troops was related not, of course, to the toppling of the Saddam regime and destroying the Iraqi army, but security after, immediately after that. And we know that there was a constant push and pull, tug of war with respect to numbers of troops. Um, and the argument has been made, and I think there, it's, it's plausible to a certain extent, that more troops might have been more successful in stifling that, that lawlessness in the immediate aftermath. But as I point out, and as I think Tucker and Henderson do in their paper, more troops ultimately led you down another set of problems. And so unless you believe that during that crucial period, what is it, three weeks, three months, okay, you would have achieved some tipping point much, much faster, then what's the plan for drawing down from 400,000 troops to 200 to, to 50,000? Um, and in that respect, ironically enough, I think Secretary Rumsfeld's instincts are actually right on that respect. That is, that if you put the troops in, you've got to figure a way to get them out eventually, um, and, and, and that's interesting. Um, I do want to pick up, though, on another point, and I, um, you, you hear a lot of suggestions that, uh, that, in fact, this was anticipated, that, in fact, uh, the lawlessness was anticipated and that this was the kind of nefarious plan. And, and I am very, very uncomfortable with these kinds of arguments because they call into question a whole host of, of, of issues in terms of our intentions in Iraq. But I do understand why they are plausible among many Iraqis. It's very troubling, uh, and I can't, answer, I can't answer that question for you. I have two, actually, let me just, two very brief points to, to add. One of the things that you see in the literature from, uh, from military personnel on, on what not to do, or, or I should say it's actually more affirmative, is secure the capital. Uh, of whatever country it is that you're in. It is essential both for international recognition and for recognition in the country that there is not chaos. The capital is secure. Um, and that was never going to happen with the number of troops that we had deployed. Uh, the, the second point that I think is interesting is we, we talk a lot about 150, 160,000 troops that were on the ground. Those aren't combat troops. Those are support troops. Uh, those are logistics people. They're any number of, 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 of other they have any number of other duties, and they carry a rifle, but they are not devoted to securing the country. So if you look at actually the number of U.S. troops or coalition troops who were actually involved in attempting, their, their primary mission was to attempt to enforce security, it's much lower than that. It's about a third of that. So I think it becomes more absurd as you drill down on the numbers themselves. Uh, but again, the literature says you've got to secure the capital, and that was never going to happen. Another question? Yes, sir. Uh, yes.
Do you want to start, Chris, or would you? It's a pretty short answer. It's offensive to me. The mere suggestion is offensive to me. And our argument has always been, if you break it, you do own it. So don't break it. I have have a little bit more to say than that. (laughs) Please, Um, I hope so. I'm a a good luck to them dove. Uh, So I think if they're to hell with them hawks, um, I I, I would rather uh, sort of flip the thing around. Um, I think that essentially what we're talking about with respect to Iran is is I'm not hearing and I pray that you're not hearing a plan for an Iraq-style mission in Iran. And if anybody in this room, please buttonhole me after the thing because, well, actually maybe not bad news on a Friday, but um, I mean, I think that what you're looking at in Iran, the, the most hawkish people are talking about targeted airstrikes. Um, so with respect to your question on Iran, I think there are a host of other uh, 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 problems, Hezbollah and Israel, total chaos in the south of Iraq, um, Straits of Hormuz. I mean, we can go down the line of, 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 of potential problems that would arise. But I think and hope and pray that the Iraq experience has chastened the administration, the Congress, and, and, and all of us enough that we would not try uh, such an ambitious uh, mission in a country with almost three times the population and a great deal more territory than Iraq. Yes, sir. Um, I went to San Jose State ROTC in the 70s, and there was a lot of argument there about the role of the military and that kind of stuff. And it strikes me that, I mean, I, I heard a lot of arguments that were going, that basically said, look, it, not every problem requires a military solution. Uh, and, 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 and if you have an army, it's, uh, you know, it's going to want to go to war because it's going to want to be used. And it struck me then that the response to those questions are, well, no, not every problem is a a military problem, but there is a subset of problems which are, and that, in fact, soldiers that understand war are ones that that understand the difficulty. It strikes me that, I mean, it's an an incredibly valuable contribution to this debate that that is underthought, and everybody's kind of jumped on the failed state bandwagon and everything, but the, the sharp, really issues to concentrate on are, is there a subset of failed states, using the term for a moment, which might constitute a threat that we might have to deal with? And in turn, is there value added by an SCRS, not in overcoming stupid politics? I mean, policy never overcomes stupid politics. politics. But might there have been value added after in in, in undoing once we were, you know, in the, in the uh, event? Uh, I wish. Um, I mean, I guess that, that, that's the shortest answer. I, actually, the, your, your setup for your question raised an interesting point, and I'll get to the question itself after that. I think there's a fundamental disconnect between our security strategy and the size of our military and the size of the State Department uh, and essentially the size of every bit of the federal bureaucracy that is devoted to foreign policy. And I think that we have, uh, surprisingly enough, a military and a State Department that is actually probably closer to Chris's and my vision of what security strategy should be and a security strategy that asks far too much from it. So I think that that, that, that your sort of setup highlights that, and I think that's an essential point is that it's totally incoherent if you're asking two people to do the job of ten. Um, but as to whether or not the existence of SCRS on the on the backside, sort of once the administration had been demonstrated um, to have done bad planning or to have rejected good planning, um, I guess I don't see where where they where they would have found their way in. 
I mean, I guess I don't see where either the people in this country demanded the Bush administration get serious about this, bring in some people who, who, who will tell you the hard truth. And I don't see where the Bush administration itself was sort of chastened enough to say, hey, well, maybe we lowballed this thing a little bit. Maybe we need to, to, to shore this up. And, and again, I think the, the fundamental problem is where, you know, so say they decided midstream, yeah, you know, we really need 300,000 troops. We don't have them. We don't have the numbers of troops um, um, that it would have taken to do this thing right. So I, I, I try to be hopeful. I mean, I'm young. I try to be <laughs> idealistic, you know. Um, but, I mean, I, I shouldn't be as, as dour and curmudgeonly as I am. So I guess the answer to my question is, uh, is no. I All right. So, so I'm a little older and I'm a little more, uh, a little more cynical and dour. Um, the first point is I, I don't want us, we, we, to the extent that we've convinced you there's a certain recognition uh, that politics is messy and messes things up, okay? No, not a revelation to, the, to this group, right? Um, but we can't just – I don't want to just move on beyond that argument because we should at least be sensitive to the fact and, and accommodate or try to, to account for it as we move forward, okay? Um, you know, when I when, – when Justin – by the way, Justin worked on this paper and was kind enough to let me – right along, which was very kind of him, and, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, but when we were working on this paper, what struck me is just how much expertise we already have in this country, in this city, not just within the government, but in the think tanks community, in the academic community, etc. cetera. I, I would argue this is not a problem of a lack of information. It's a problem of too much information, which allows you, as I've tried to lay out in my, you know, make my case with respect to Iraq, is it allows you to pick and choose from the voices of, of uh, an expert, so-called, who you are inclined to believe. So this is not a problem of too little, okay? Um, and in that context, and we do address this very explicitly in the paper, is are there instances when what we would characterize as a failed state do pose a threat to the United States. Yes, absolutely. Afghanistan is one such example. When we are confronted with such a clear case, we, the United States, you know, the, the U.S. people and the U.S. government have the capacity for assembling the skills and, and talent necessary to deal with those kinds of problems. So, I mean, that's what I believe, and, and uh, I think that's the case we try to make. We try to make that that point quite explicitly in the paper. Uh, yes, sir, in the back. You, in, in setting forth the planning uh, mistakes and decision mistakes and going into Iraq, you seem to suggest it might have been ideology or it might have been naivete and other things that occur Um, just for the record, I did not say religion and, and, uh, and corruption. So, <laughs> no, I know. I just, I did say ideology and naivete. So let me address those two points. Um, uh, and this relates to my previous, uh, the previous question and answer, and that is, 
when people go into a problem, any problem, with certain preconceived notions, what will it take to shake them from those preconceived notions? How open are they to dissenting opinions and dissenting advice? And we would like to believe that our policymakers are open to such things because it's crucial to making good decisions. Um, and so that's the lesson. That is the lesson, is that we should, we should be looking for policymakers who are open to dissenting opinions, who weigh the evidence dispassionately, who do not cherry-pick, who do not privilege certain people over other genuine experts because of their, their presumed preconceived notions. It's only apparent in retrospect. But with all due respect, I think that's the problem. I'm a historian, by the way, so it's easy for me to say that. Um, and, and, but we have to be sensitive to it. We have to be sensitive to say, when you, you ask certain questions about dealing with problems, how do you solve problems? What, who do you listen to? What kind of advice do you take? How do you weigh up the, those, those different points? And, um, and I think we should be particularly uh, kind of sensitive to when ideology creeps into that discussion. I mean, ideology is important. I, I'm the first to admit that. But we don't want it to ki Hmm? I think there's a very critical there's a very there's a very critical ideology with respect to military force planning and, the, and Secretary Rumsfeld is very very explicit on this point. I mean, he believed and made it made a, a, a very important speech just a month before the start of the Iraq war that we were going to conduct military operations with far fewer troops than we did in the past. And this is not unique to him, okay? It's not unique to him. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty long-standing uh, body of, body of, of work. Um, I would argue that that works just fine for breaking countries, especially when you have a military that has the technological advantages the United States does. It works very poorly for rebuilding them. So. Uh, yes, sir. I, 
I, I think there's – you raise a very interesting point, and I think maybe I didn't – wasn't as articulate as I should have been or didn't, didn't uh, go into as much detail as I should have. But my belief is, is sincere in that, by and large, there is no way to come up with a template that you can say, we did this in Thailand, and now we're going to apply the lessons to uh, Benin. Um, I think that the one commonality – is a total national determination to impose its will and to stay the course and to bear any burden. Um, and I think that that is the, the, sort of the one common theme that runs throughout all the literature that we combed through is that there has to just be sort of an unshakable British approach of, of just total national determination to stay. Um, but I think in turn, there are so many differences between, I mean, if you look at the list of failed states that we've come up with, even on those lists, they are incredibly disparate. The problems that they have are incredibly disparate. And I think to attribute to U.S. policymakers the wisdom to form, I mean, we, the creation of the United States of America, in my view, was a profound stroke of luck. <laughs> and a and an aberration, and boy, I'm glad it happened. But I'm not at all confident that that we are ready. That U.S. policymakers, with a very limited, not, I mean, even people in the State Department, if you can find me ten people in the State Department who really know what's going on in Kyrgyzstan today, I, I would be astonished. I think that our ability to change things, to to to, to implant institutions, is so contingent on a genuine knowledge. Of, of the societies that I, do, I think it's incredibly difficult or likely impossible to come up with a broad template uh, from which you could sort of uh, aggregate all of the lessons learned. And I think, oh, by the way, in the process of learning all of these lessons, we're probably going to screw up a lot. We're probably going to fail a lot. So I guess we, we start from the premise that this probably isn't necessary. Being that it's not necessary, oh, well, we're probably likely to fail to a great extent in, in, in trying. So if it's not necessary and you're likely to fail, our sort of default position is don't do it. Let me – can I – actually, can I pick up on just very one, one point, um, and that is there is a model <clears> – <throat> I don't know if it's a model so much if it's a rule of thumb, okay? And the rule of thumb is lots of effort, lots of time, lots of people, and then you work out the details from there. Right. Well, it starts with security. Crit critically, it starts with security. And, and another paper that we stumbled upon in the course of doing our research began after, after the, our paper was published, very fine paper by a professor at Georgetown University, David Edelstein, talks about occupations. Now, not all occupations are nation-building necessarily, post-war occupation. But if you look at post-war occupations, uh, many of which also failed, again, not necessarily nation-building, uh, those that succeeded had a few critical conditions. Number one is an understanding, both by the occupying power and by the occupied, that the occupation was necessary, in other words, for the security purposes, okay, and therefore a commitment by both parties on both sides to endure it for a period of time. Critically, it also required, also, a credible pledge to leave. But what we also find and, and I think, again, I commend the paper because the, the literature on this is really quite striking. The advocates of nation-building who do not approach it as a post-war occupation problem say you cannot leave. You can't talk about leaving. To talk about leaving is 
backwards, in effect. And so you have this inherent tension between what we know from historical experience tells us is barely likely to succeed and what is highly unlikely to succeed. Do you follow me? I mean, we have a real inherent tension here, and I can't resolve it. What we say in our paper is that it can't be resolved. When there are genuine national security threats, we approach them as such. But do not embark on an open-ended mission to build nations. That's where you get yourself into trouble. Okay, uh, one last question. There in the back. Such as, can you be a little more specific? Uh, perhaps uh, larger coalitions, um, more nations, um, and I'm also curious as to how just, uh, well, I guess we'll just leave that. There. Right, well, I can address, uh, let me answer just part of that question, and Justin can pick up on the other part. Returning to the, to the issue about occupation and numbers of troops and providing security in a country, um, uh, there is no evidence that an occupation or nation building so far, there is no evidence that it is substantially more likely to succeed if it is multilateral as opposed to unilateral, okay? Secondly, um, given that the kinds of countries that would be providing troops to a post, post-war uh, stabilization nation building mission are dem- uh, democracies, then we should expect to see pub- public support, popular support for those interventions and for sustaining those over a long period of time. You don't see that often. And, and given that, unless we, wanna, unless we want to align ourselves, and I don't think we do, unless we want to align ourselves with, with governments that are in a position to say, I don't care what the people think, we need 100,000 troops on the ground and we're going to go get it, then, then you're up against a totally different problem. It, it is, there are very few iron laws. I'm a historian, as I've already said. Okay, there are very few iron laws. What we see in occupations is one of the iron laws is you've got to have security, and security is contingent on numbers of troops slash police forces. Yeah, by and large, I I agree very much with what Chris said in terms of the numbers of countries uh, on the list of coalition and sort of the issue of international legitimacy. Um, To the extent that you had more troops, to the extent that that a country with a significant number of troops were able to contribute them, it would certainly increase the probability of a good outcome. Um, But I don't – I'll just close, I guess, with a little anecdote. As I mentioned, I didn't – I don't see China or India or Russia lining up to help us, even in Iraq where there are genuine security concerns. I mean, this is not a, a, a sort of just humanitarian intervention. I mean, China and Russia and India, I mean, China and Russia and India all have interests in that country. Uh, and in May 2003, President Putin was asked um, about potential Russian involvement in Iraq. And Putin's response was to say, in, in response to the question of Russian uh, troops' involvement in Iraq, you just want to say, right. Like we're that stupid, and that was and that was his response. So I think if that's Russia's response to a genuine security concern, is to just sort of let the United States hang itself out to dry. I think it's incredibly unlikely that they're going to come along uh, on these missions, which are much further disconnected from uh, the national security of those countries. 
Okay, and with that, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up the Hill briefing. Thank you very much for coming out this afternoon. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>